The past can teach us so much. Our own pasts are filled with lessons, moments of growth, and encounters with Jesus. These can have a profound impact on our steps today. Pastor Daniel uses today's message to remind us of the benefits of learning not just from our own pasts, but from the pasts of others, especially those in the Bible. Their mistakes don't have to become ours. Their blessings still apply to us today. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Jude, verse 3. We have part three of his message, The Struggle is Real. You are dearly beloved, powerfully beloved. And I believe God wants to form that in us as his kids. But he says to them, he calls them beloved. He says, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, he's saying, look, I'm diligent to write to you. And he really wanted to write about their common salvation, but he ends up having to exhort them to contend for their faith. And that word contend means to struggle or to fight. So I call this message The struggle is real. But what does this teach us? It teaches us that we need to fight for the right things. We need to fight for the right things. Now, for me, it's funny. When I wrote this point down, I was tipping my hat to the Beastie Boys. For those of you who are children of the 80s, anybody? Yeah, a couple of you. You sinners. Not just The Beastie Boys put out a song called You Gotta Fight for Your Right to What? Party. That's right. That's not what you're supposed to fight for. That's not the right thing to fight for. You know what I mean? But, you know, but I thought it was such a, it's a great phrase. And it's like, you know, you gotta fight for your right, for the right things. Anyway, no, that's terrible. That was cheesy. Forgive it. Rewind the tape. But we gotta fight for the right things. You gotta fight for the right things. What we find here is that Jude is exhorting the church that there's something that they need to fight for that is the right thing. Notice that you contend earnestly. I mean, you think about the idea of being a contender. You think of a boxer. I could have been a contender. You know what I mean? Like, there's this idea that you're at a fight and someone's going to win here. And we need to fight for the right things. And really what he's saying is that we need to fight. The right thing to fight for is the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. See, in the early church... There were some struggles. And we're going to find out that there's been some people who've kind of come into the church who are seen as part of the church, but they're really not. And they're trying to undermine the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, no, no, you got to fight against that. You need to contend. You need to struggle against that. 
Because notice what it says, and we, we understand who, what the problem was in verse 4. It says, for certain men have crept in, unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we find out that there's these men, and they're called ungodly men, and they've snuck on in. So realize, the church then was house churches. So it wasn't like this. It was like in someone's house. It was like a small group. That was the other church, right? And so they had these, this little small group of believers, and they're all in a house, and all of a sudden someone comes in, they look like they're a Christian, and they kind of act like they're a Christian, but they're really not. They've been marked out for condemnation before the foundation of the earth, but they snuck on in, and they have two goals. One, cheapening the grace of God, and two, denying who the Lord really is. That's what we learn here. The first thing that they're doing is they're trying to take the grace of God, and they're trying to make it a license for sin. Right? They turn God's grace into lewdness. Now think about this. The idea here is that we all met people, and unfortunately some of us are like this, where you say, don't judge me. God knows my heart. But really what you're saying is, is that I'm doing things I know I'm not supposed to do, and you talk to me about it, and you're not supposed to talk to me about it. The idea is that I can do what I want, but because I'm a follower of Jesus, it's all good. And what's interesting is this was going on in the early church. Because it's all about grace, not about works, it doesn't matter what I do. And I'm here to tell you, that's a flat-out lie. It's totally about what you do. Because who you are is what you do, at the very least. You know what is in your heart by the way that you act. And your actions are a window as to the person that you are. But for most of us, we don't ever think about ourselves that way. Now, I'm not going to say that you're only what you do. But what you do every day shows who you are. And what happens is, is that for many people, you follow Jesus, you're like, well, it doesn't matter if I sleep around outside of marriage. I mean, I'm a Christian. There's grace for me. And that's not biblical grace. That's cheap grace. That isn't even grace. See, scholars call this antinomianism. Now, you got to love scholars because they got to make up big words that we don't know so that you think, wow, they're so smart. And, you know, it's good that they get paid all this money to be so smart. Right? Antinomianism. So anti means against. Namos in the Greek means law. And anism is anism is anism. You know what I mean? So the idea is they're against law. It doesn't matter what I do. And that's what happened in this church that Jude is writing to. So these guys came in and said, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. Forget about trying to live right. Forget about trying to be light in the world. Forget about being pure and being holy. It's all about grace, dude. Do whatever you want. And you know what's amazing? Churches blow up. Get huge churches when people say, just follow Jesus, no matter who you are. And I'm here to tell you, it totally matters who you are. That's why Jesus died. Because what we do sometimes stinks. And God doesn't want us to stink forever. It's like my little Annabelle. She's getting ready to be potty trained. Sometimes Annabelle's got poop in her diaper. And you know what's funny is, it's like we live in contemporary culture. So I remember my Uncle Frank, we used to call him Uncle Cheech. First time, you got to love that. Uncle Frank, we call him Uncle Cheech, right? Uncle Cheech, I remember the first time we had Obadiah, right? And I was changing a diaper, and Uncle Cheech is like, you're not supposed to change your diaper. That's Lynn's job. I'm like, Uncle Cheech, the world has changed, bro. He's like, really? I would throw up. I'm like, now it comes out. The reason guys didn't like to change diapers is they got a gag reflex with a little poopy, you know? But anyway, when Annabelle stinks, we change her diaper. You know why? Because she stinks, And when our actions stink, God doesn't want us to stink. 
And it does matter how you live. Your life matters. Everything you do isn't just your life. It impacts everything around us. And so God doesn't want us to take grace and make it into lewdness. That's not a good thing. And that's one of the ways the gospel's been subverted. Another way, of course, is just a denial of the person and work of Jesus. The idea of Lord Jesus Christ. That's not his first name, middle name, and last name. I used to think that. Before I was a Christian, I'm like, Lord Jesus Christ, name's Lord, you know, it's his first name, middle name, and last name. He's just like Lee Harvey Oswald, you know? <laughs> not like, you know what I mean. You conspiracy theorists like, well, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't really kill the President Kennedy. He was in the CIA. Anyway, sorry. I should have drank more coffee this morning. <laughs> but the idea of Lord, that's his title. He's the, he's the king of kings and the Lord. He's the master. Jesus, that's his name. That's the, that was his given name. And then Christ, that's his position as God's anointed one. And Lord Jesus Christ, that's the full message. I mean, in those three words, you get the whole work of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, the perfectly lived life, the sacrificial death on the cross, the resurrection because death couldn't hold him, the ascension into heaven because he's the man and he's coming back. All in those three words, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the goal of this subversion of the gospel was to get people not to apply God's grace to the way that they live and to deny the person and work of Jesus. And what's amazing is, is even though it's thousands of years later, same stuff's going on today, isn't it? There are people who want to tell you that it doesn't matter how you live or your friends tell you it doesn't matter how you live. And that's a lie. And there's a lot of people who want to deny the personal work of Jesus. And this is the right fight that we need to fight. Now, before I move on from this, I want to say something real quick. Because when I say a message about you got to fight for the right things, there's some of us who are just flat out quarrelsome. Like you just like to fight about everything. And then you get saved, and you're always fighting with people about something in the name of this. And I'm here to tell you, no, if you're quarrelsome, that's a sin. And you get, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says that the man of God should not be quarrelsome. He should be kind. So the thing is, is that, like, I know this guy. Outside of Jesus, he was quarrelsome. He ended up in jail, all this stuff. And then he gets saved, and now he's always fighting with everybody in the name of, I'm fighting for Jesus. And it's like, no, no, you're quarrelsome. And that is not Jesus. That's not the heart of Jesus. And we have to make sure, because some of us are quarrelsome, and you need to stop that. It's not a good thing. Being quarrelsome is not a sign of Christian maturity. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. You, know, you guys know the list, right? So peace and quarrelsome, they go together? No. But sometimes we need to fight the right things in order to keep all those things in check. And so I just wanted to make sure I nuance that before someone goes on a rampage in Jesus' name. So, well, Fusco said we need to fight for the right thing. So I'm fighting everybody. I'm the heresy hunter. You know? <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that to the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. All right, let's keep moving. You guys are funny today. <laughs> Verse 5. But I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, 
here we get another triad, another set of three. And what he's doing is he's saying, look, Judah's saying, in the church, right, like Jesus said, there's wheat and tares. There's those who are really planted in God's garden, and there's those things that are weeds that are meant to undermine God's garden. Now you have this church where there's a couple people in there who they're in there, but they're really not supposed to be there, and they're subverting the gospel. And he says, just to make sure, I want to apply to you things that you already know about to show you what happens to the people who are in there who are really not supposed to be. The people who are in it, but not of it. In the church, in Christ, but really not in Christ. They're part of the church, but they're not in Christ. And he gives these three examples. And really, what we learn from this is that you and I need to learn from the past. You and I need to learn from the past. Experience is a great teacher, isn't it? And so you need to learn from your own past, things that you've experienced, the past of people around you, and you can see things there. But also, we need to learn from biblical past. God has given us all these things in a book so that we would learn these things, that we would say, oh, that reminds me of this thing. Oh, now we know what God feels about that. So we get these three examples from the past, from the biblical history, that teach us a little bit about what happens to people who are part of the whole thing but start getting a little sideways. First we see, and this will give you some homework. I'm going to give you the scriptures because I could do series of messages on every one of these verses. And each one of these things, I mean, when I taught these sections that I'm going to share with you now at our Wednesday night services, we're going through what we call the Old Testament. I spent many, many weeks trying to unpack all this stuff. So I'm going to give you the overview. But if you want to read more, study more, I would encourage you to first in verse 5. But I wanted to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is, of course, Numbers 13 and 14. Numbers 13 and 14. This is the sin of the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. You remember the story. God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, and he was going to bring them into the promised land. And as they got close to the promised land, they sent 12 spies, right? One from each of the tribes to go into the promised land to kind of spy out the land. And those guys came back. Out of all 12, only two of them said that we should go in because God has given it to us, Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 said, ain't no way we're going in. The cities are too big. We're not armed. We're going to get wiped out. Yeah, God may be God, but I don't want to do that. Right? And what ended up happening was, is they followed the 10 who were fearful instead of the two who trusted in God, and they didn't go in. And God, at that moment, cursed the children of Israel that that generation was going to die in the wilderness. That's the example he uses. See, because out of the 12 spies who went in, only two of them were really trusting in God and the other 10 weren't. And he's saying, look, if he did it to the children of Israel when they left Egypt, what about this situation? You see what he's he's doing there? Now, the next one in verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Of course, this is the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Now, that passage is very, very controversial, but it has this idea of the sons of God and the daughters of men getting together and having kind of some fallen angel human offspring. Now, it's a very weird passage, and there's a lot of dispute over it, but the idea here is that there was a group of angels who God created to bring him glory and to do his bidding who rebelled against him, and of that group, Satan was one of them, the ringleader of it. And he's saying, look, there were angels who God created for his own glory who fell from their proper domain. They didn't, they didn't keep their own abode, and they're reserved and changed for everlasting judgment. 
Just like these guys who crept in, who it said they were reserved for condemnation beforehand. And then the last one, of course, in Jude verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, as set forth in his example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This is Genesis 19. Genesis 19. Now, I realize you bring up Sodom and Gomorrah in 21st century Western culture, the sexual immorality and the strange flesh. You walk right into a cultural landmine. But here's the deal. God has a plan for human sexuality. And God's plan for human sexuality is very, very specifically explained for very, very specific reasons. And God's plan for your sexuality is to be the physical embodiment of God taking a husband and a wife and the two becoming one flesh. And that picture is not just for human happiness. It's actually a picture to the world of Jesus and his church. And God's plan for human sexuality has very specific boundaries. Why? Because God likes his pictures to be perfect. And you know what happens in a situation where there's sexual immorality or homosexuality? It completely skews the picture. And guess what happens when the picture is skewed? Everything breaks from there. So my friends, God loves his people to be different. Now, you might say, well, listen, our culture doesn't believe that. Listen, who cares what our culture believes? Listen, it is not a healthy thing to be well-adjusted to a world that is dying. Think about that. It is not a mark of being healthy to be well-adjusted to a world that is going away. And I realize, listen, there's some of you here right now, and I realize this, it's a big church, we have lots of people in lots of places here. There's many of you here right now who either struggle with same-sex attraction, or you're given over to it right now. And I'm here to tell you, God wants to do a work in your life. And listen, there's many of you here right now, you're struggling with heterosexual sexual immorality, or you're given over to it, and guess what? God wants to do a work in your life. Listen, God wants to do a work in every one of our lives. And whatever your struggle is, it is your struggle. But God defines what is acceptable and what is not. And we have to remember that. Because I realize it's a politicized thing. It's a civil rights thing. There's lots of variables in this discussion. But one thing that isn't a variable in the discussion is God's plans and designs for humanity, no matter what their sexual orientation is. And that, my friends changes the whole thing. It changes the way we look at this whole thing. Because what you realize is that your it makes total sense that Satan would come and pervert sexuality because it is the human embodiment of a spiritual reality that the two become one flesh. And when the two do not have faithfulness and fidelity, then they don't have trust. And when you don't have trust, everything breaks down. And that's the world that we live in right now. But this triad, it teaches for Sodom and Gomorrah, they literally sent angels to go and let them know that judgment was coming if they would avert it, and Sodom and Gomorrah still got destroyed. You see how all this relates together? This is why we have to fight for the right things, and we have to learn from history. And I want to close this out. Look at verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. It says, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel... 
in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but says, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, or whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, notice a couple of these triads in verse 8. Likewise, also these dreamers, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. So Jude isn't done trying to get at the core values of these people who are part of the church but really don't belong there. They're dreamers. They're given over to their own imaginations. They defile the flesh because they don't really care. They're doing whatever they want. They've been given over to the lewdness. It says, of course, here, they reject authority. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then it says, they speak evil of dignitaries. Now, this is a fascinating thing. And exactly what it means, people don't really know. The idea of dignitaries means glorious ones or the heavenlies. And so it would seem that in some ways, their perversion was in some ways a perversion of the teaching on some of the angels. Of course, Paul gets into the fact that the law was mediated through an angel. So how it all fits together, I'm not entirely sure. But when he says that, that they speak evil of dignitaries, then he jumps off and he says, yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, that's a strange thing. Remember in the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses goes up on a mountain to die, right? And he was like, well, I wonder what happened to Moses. Well, in the apocryphal book, in the intertestamental book called The Assumption of Moses, it actually says that God sent Michael, the archangel, to bury Moses' body, and that Michael the archangel and Lucifer, who we know as Satan, Satan wanted Moses' body because Moses was a murderer. Remember Exodus chapter 2. And it says here that Michael the archangel did not dispute with Satan, but he just simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, what's interesting about this? I mean, it's just kind of, there's a lot in there, and I could talk about this for a long, long time. But what's interesting is, first, what he's saying is that if Michael the archangel didn't get into it with Satan, just said, the Lord rebuke you. How much more should these false teachers just stop talking? You know? And I thought it's a pretty powerful example where he's just like, no, 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 no. Like Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, that's the first side of it. The second side of it is, listen, don't argue with Satan. I love it. Michael's kind of like, bro, ain't no one got time for that. You know, like the Lord rebuke you. You know what I mean? And I think for some of us, like, there's whole schools of the church where they're, like, figuring out, like, how to do capoeira with Satan. Forget that. Just say, the Lord rebuke you. Like, just go to talk to Jesus. He kicked your butt. He's been doing it for eternity. He's going to do it in the end. It's all good. Just go talk to Jesus and go away. And I'll be honest with you, like, don't antagonize Satan. Just say, the Lord rebuke you. I got business to do with Jesus right now. Does that make sense? Because I think sometimes we get all worked up about this stuff and we try and figure this stuff out. Don't even figure it. Like, Jesus already figured it out. Jesus is real. There's things in the Bible that don't always make sense and many more that are difficult to get into. Today's message fell into that category. Pastor Daniel addressed and explained some tough topics, all while encouraging us to take these issues before God on our own. 
When Satan tries to tell us lies, we need to claim our freedom from him through the power of Jesus' name. Jesus has already won our battle with the enemy. Jesus is Real Radio is the radio ministry of Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. The messages that you hear each day here on Jesus is Real Radio were produced from messages that Pastor Daniel shared on Sunday mornings and the midweek study. It's our prayer that this teaching from God's Word blessed and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus Christ. One of the things that I'm the most stoked about is that this year we launched a brand new campus in Southwest Portland. We would love to invite everyone to come and join Crossroads Southwest Portland on Sundays at 10 a.m. We're growing and honestly, not just in Southwest Portland, but all over the country and the world as people join us at our online campus, 9, 11, and 1 p.m. or Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. on our online campus, crossroadslive.tv. Now here's Josh with what's coming up on our next edition of Jesus is Real Radio. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will share more from the short but powerful New Testament book of Jude. The people Jude was writing to were dealing with false teachers who were clouding the message of love and grace of the life we have in Jesus. Today, we still have to deal with the people who are putting truth on the back burner. Their message needs to be stopped, and truth needs to be shared. There's more to come from Pastor Daniel's series, Little is the New Bit. Please glance at the clock right now and make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus is Real Radio.